Clearly, an area like the French Quarter is not the proper environment for a clean-living, prudent, and impressionable young working boy. What do you think, Jackie? I mean, it made me feel (laughs) gross, so yeah, I think he captured the spirit. everyone. Welcome to Fire the Canon. This is the podcast where we read the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or not. I have a valve problem. Jackie. <laughs> the valve problem's name? Jackie. Theo's a host. No, I'm not. No, I'm the producer. Theo's the host. I'm editing all of that out. <laughs> I'm Theo. I am the producer of this podcast. And Jackie has a valve problem. <laughs> Yeah, I do. My name is Rachel. I'm the other host of the podcast. My valve, non-existent. <laughs> non-existent. That sounds like a problem, too. Yeah. You need to have a little bit of resistance in the system. You can't just have it be like a tube. I'm not sure if we actually have a valve. <laughs> Ignatius says we do. Oh, we, we have many valves. Yeah, but the one he's talking about, I don't know. For context, Ignatius says he has a valve. Should we say what book Ignatius is from? Yeah. <laughs> Would that be better context? For context for that sentence I just said, <laughs> Ignatius is the main character, the primary character of the novel A Confederacy of Dunces. It's by John Kennedy Toole. It's a book about New Orleans. It's a book about Ignatius. It's a book about all the people surrounding Ignatius. Literally every person Ignatius meets. <laughs> yeah. And some he doesn't really meet. <laughs> yeah. It's like he meets someone and you think it's just going to be this momentary episode. And then you find out later that that person gets a continuing storyline for the next 300 pages. Yeah. And that's why the book is so long, seriously. So an explanation of the valve is that Ignatius pretends he has... I guess an organ in his body that he calls his valve. And anytime someone does something that he doesn't like, he says his valve is closing. And it may remain closed for weeks if we're not careful. So we have to treat him very gently. Anytime his valve is closing or closed or whatever, he is in a lot of discomfort. A lot of the times it's literally just that he has to burp (laughs) or he just wants an excuse to not go to work. (laughs) He brings it up in almost every scene, right? Yeah, but, but okay, wait a second though, but my valve is real. Do you want to tell people a little, a really quick summary of episode one, Theo, in case they don't want to go back? (laughs) Okay, so Rachel wants me to summarize the previous episode of our podcast. Quickly. Basically, uh, there's a guy named, basically, the, the (laughs) the main character's name is Ignatius. He has a mother who he treats very badly, but he lives with and she runs into a building. They have to end up paying for it because they cause damages. And in order to pay for it, Ignatius gets a job at Levy Pants. And then he causes a whole issue trying to overthrow the the manager at Levy Pants and gets fired for it. Meanwhile, there's a bar called the Night of Joy. The owner of the Night of Joy is named Lena Lee. She has an employee named Darlene. Yes. And you see her hire a man named Jones. Jones is a black man, so if he doesn't have a job, he'll get in trouble with the police for vagrancy. So he has to take this job that Lena Lee Lee offers him that is underpaid and overworked. It's basically just sweeping the floor for hours and hours of yeah. a day. And so then he spends the rest of the book trying to figure out some way to get revenge on her for this. He also keeps hearing stories about Ignatius and really wants to meet him. Right. There's also a police officer named Patrolman Mancuso. His story sort of interweaves with all the different characters. Uh, he tries to arrest Ignatius at the beginning, then he arrests an old man, and then he sort of befriends Ignatius's mom. Yeah, and he gets punished for his mistake in chapter one by being forced to dress up in random bizarre outfits to try to arrest people. And he gets stationed in like a bus station bathroom for a while. Are you guys ready to get in there? Yep. Ready. We're in it now. We're in chapter seven. So we open this chapter with <laughs> Ignatius getting a new job. And this one is at a hot dog vending company called Paradise Vendors Incorporated. These hot dogs make me so glad 
that I don't eat meat. Oh, they actually made me want a hot dog. Are you fucking kidding me? What's wrong with the hot dogs? <laughs> Ignatius asks the man what they're made of, and he says, rubber, cereal, tripe, I don't know what else. I would never eat them myself. He's just kidding. <laughs> no, he's not. Yeah, and then when he's, he's he stirs the vat of hot dogs with a fork, Ignatius is like, can I have a hot dog? And he says, don't put your hand in there. It's not for sanitary reasons. He says, it's basically acid by now. Look what it's done to the fork. And the metal fork is like, warped from the acidity of the hot dog boiling water. He's just kidding. What? Later, the hot dog man says to Ignatius, we've gotten a complaint from the health department about you. And Ignatius says, I don't understand how I could possibly have given your hot dogs any disease that they don't already have, Mm -hmm. which I thought was so funny. Do you actually want to eat one, Jackie? I mean, Uh, no, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's good for her valve. Ignatius loves them. He's always sucking those things down. It's very bad for Ignatius's valve. No. He loves those. But anyway, he and his mother calls them. He calls them uh, weenies. He says, weenies. "I'm a weenie man. Yeah. I run a weenie cart." <laughs> Theo, do you want to eat one? Theo, do you want to eat a weenie? I just thought this is like sort of typical hot dog joke that it's made out of things you wouldn't be able to predict. Yeah, I feel like all hot dogs are kind of gross, but they taste fine. Yeah, they're not as gross now as they used to be, but. Those particular hot dogs sound worse than ever. (laughs) This section is very interesting. Well, it's funny because he first meets the hot dog vendor by saying he wants to buy a hot dog. And then he eats it and then says, oh, sorry, I don't have any money. No, he eats four hot dogs. He keeps eating hot dogs. (laughs) And the man says like, oh, you need a job. You should push this hot dog cart. And he's like, no. And the man says, okay, whatever. Pay me for the hot dogs. And Ignatius tells him, oh, I don't have any money. Oh, well, bye. And try. And essentially he ends up having to get this job to pay off the four hot dogs that he ate without paying for them. But he ends up just eating many, many, many more hot dogs. And this was just a raw deal for the weenie man. It seems like he is selling a decent number of hot dogs. It's just he eats so many that his take home pay every day is like a dollar, 50 cents. At first he's not selling any because someone came up to him and tried to buy some. And he was like, no, get away from me. You don't deserve one of these hot dogs. Yeah, the orphan George. There's an orphan boy who's involved with Lana Lee in some sort of contraband scheme, he goes up to Ignatius and he, yeah, he wants to purchase a hot dog. And Ignatius tells him like, look at all your pimples. I don't want to contribute to the downfall of the youth by giving them this (laughs) filth. So you can't have a hot dog. Actually, Ignatius is so funny. (laughs) There were a dozen in the truck. I think Ignatius eats eight of them. Yeah, of them. And he's like, yeah, they robbed me and took most of the hot dogs. Yeah. And then the hot dog man is like, why would they take most of the hot dogs? That doesn't make any sense. Well, you just grab a handful and run. Mm -hmm. You could fit eight in a hand. I think it's eight between two hands. You put one between each finger. Uh, fingy. Fingy. So yeah, the man's like, uh, all right, well, you can try again tomorrow. <laughs> uh, okay, so the other funny thing that, that was written is they describe the hot dog cart as a dinosaur egg about to hatch, which I thought Theo was like, ooh, finally <laughs> dinosaurs come into the story. <laughs> yeah, I have that highlighted and I read beside it. This is where I started to like this book. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> In the next scene, we go back to the Night of Joy, like that very seedy bar, and we find out that Jones is still attempting to commit some sort of sabotage, and Darlene, the former B-girl, is now working on her bird act. So that's that. I don't really have anything else to say about it. Do you think that she has to deal with, like, beverages and birds because she's a B-girl? And if she had gotten a different lot in life, she could have been, like, an actress or... An A-girl? Maybe her next thing is going to be, like, a bazooka girl. I would not be surprised if someone wrote, like, a bad uh, Hunger Games ripoff where everyone gets assigned a letter and they can only do a job that starts with that letter and it's a dystopia. (laughs) I guarantee you there's a YA novel out there about it right now. And one girl is like, oh my gosh, I've been assigned multiple letters. (laughs) Oh. Oh, I have the whole alphabet. Or one girl is, she's clever enough to realize that if she's a B girl, then she can just be the best astronaut. Yeah. <laughs> or the boss. Or the boss, yeah. The boss of the country. The boss of everyone. Yeah. <laughs> or the biggest mattress salesman. Nice. Ooh. Is the mattress big or is she big? Who knows? She just had one great sale selling the biggest mattress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you guys ever read or watched any of those Hunger Games ripoffs? 
by the way, or heard their premises. I've never even read the Hunger Games, so no. You saw the Hunger Games movies with Abby, though, right? I saw the first one and the third one, and when I was in the movie theater watching the third one, I thought I was seeing the second one, so I was real confused. Uh-huh. Like, oh, how did we get here? Because I was like, this isn't where the last movie left off. <laughs> I didn't realize until the end of the movie. I was like, what? <laughs> You're like, Jacqueline, this was number three. <laughs> you missed a whole movie in the middle. That's so funny. I only read the first four Harry Potters and only saw the first two movies, but then I went to see the very last one, uh-huh. and my friends told me that Ron had died. <laughs> So then it was a little confusing seeing him alive and well. That's really funny. Why did they tell you that? Revenge for the bee in the wind. <laughs> Maybe. And then when you saw him on the screen, were you like, oh, I must be confused. That must be one of his brothers. I started yelling, that's a continuity error. They're messing up right now. Go back to hell, Ron. <laughs> back to hell, Ron. <laughs> That's probably the episode title, right? Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Back to the fiery chasm from whence you came, Ron Weasley. Harry Potter has nothing to do with the Hunger Games, by the way. (laughs) Okay, come on. It has a little bit to do. No. They're in the same sort of... Same universe? No. (laughs) They're the same kinds of people like them. I mean, it's a YA thing. Yeah. That would be funny, though, if people were like, oh, you know, how come uh, there are no Americans involved in the Harry Potter thing? Like, why wasn't Voldemort doing anything to the U.S.? And you're like, the Hunger Games was happening. They were a little busy. (laughs) Why do you and your sister both say Voldemort instead of Voldemort? I don't say Voldemort. Why are you making fun of him for being bald? (laughs) How are you saying that I said it? You and Becca both say Voldemort. I say Voldemort. So you're doing a fake British accent. Interesting. No, that's just V-O-L, Vold. That's how you say it. Do you also call Harry Potter Harry Potter? Do you call him Harry Potter? No, what are you talking about? That's just how you pronounce Voldemort. He's not real. You can. It's a fake name for a fake guy. You can call him whatever. You're not even supposed to be saying his name, you realize. I'm just saying I've never heard anyone pronounce it that way except for you and Becca. What do they say in the movie? They say Voldemort. I guess British people say it that way. Come on, weirdo. Yeah. Why would Americans say it differently? All right, now that Jackie's infuriated everyone, let's move on. It's my valve. My valve is acting up. I read the first Hunger Games book. You read the first Hunger Games? You did? Mm -hmm. Susan Clark, I think is the writer's name. She did a good job coming up with, a decent job coming up with a dystopia that makes a little bit of sense. But after everyone realized dystopias were popular, they were like, oh, let's pick a bizarre rule and there's no reason for it. Do you know the (laughs) Divergent series? No. I've heard of it. Okay, I'll tell you. It's pretty funny. So that was the most famous of the ripoffs. And the rule is in this society, whenever you turn like 16, you get sorted into a community based on one personality trait. So it's basically like Hogwarts, but it's like there are these people who are just really bold and these people are really nice and these people are smart and you have to go (laughs) live with them. So she lives with like the nice ones and her family is so excited. Wait, can I guess that yeah. then some of them realize, oh my God, I have more than one personality trait. I'm divergent. Yeah, she's the only one. Okay, that, sound, that sounds like Ayn Rand. It turns out she has multiple personality traits. Yeah, and she's called divergent, but she has to pick one and then she's like, I'm going to take this system down because I'm nice and I'm brave. <laughs> but there's no reason. I would have been like, I'm like ambitious but lazy and I also like really like cheese too much. I have no good personality traits. I'm divergent. Yeah, I have no good personality traits. <laughs> you really like cheese too much. It would suck to be put into that community. <laughs> yeah. What were you asking, Theo? I, well, I'm just thinking that being in a community full of lots of bold people sounds like my nightmare. It is. When you join, everyone's like, okay, if you want to join us, you have to jump onto a moving train. That's the only way to get to our house. <laughs> and everyone dresses in all black and they have tattoos and like weird haircuts and piercing wow I would have been like, if you want to get into my house, you have to eat 75 mozzarella sticks in under a minute. Go. I feel like Jackie isn't helping her valve with that kind of diet. Do you want to hear what the factions are called? I just Googled it. Nah. Go ahead, Rachel. So there's abnegation, the selfless, candor, the honest, amity, the kind, and dauntless, the brave. And she has multiple personality traits. But there's no reason. In the Hunger Games, there's a reason for the Hunger Games to happen. You know, like within the world. Mm -hmm. But in this book, the reason they give is like, 
uh, you know, global warming happened and everyone thought there was a different reason for it. Like some people thought humans weren't brave enough and some people thought we weren't smart enough. So they decided to form yeah. factions where we only <laughs> cultivate this one trait. And the candor people knew the real reason and told the truth about it and everyone else was just full of shit. So they're like, let's just move to our own island. Let's make an honesty island. I think I would be in candor. Okay, here we go. So we've moved on. So we're in a in the next scene. We are back to Ignatius's mother and she's really upset because her son is a weenie man. <laughs> she would like to meet up with this wealthy old man we heard about earlier who's interested in her. So her friend Santa is going to set the two of them up. I think that Irene is being a little judgy about the weenie man thing. Like, shouldn't she just be encouraging him to have any job? I think she's just pissed that she spent so much money, like every penny she had on his master's degree and he like keeps bringing her home 50 cents a day from selling weenies. <laughs> no, but she's also like everyone on the street knows, like everyone talks about it. He's the weenie man. <laughs> they know my son is a weenie man. <laughs> yeah, and she keeps saying anybody who does that job, we know what kind of people they are. Yeah, what does that mean? She is judgy, but the guy who owns the weenie mobile place, he also says like, Everyone knows that only bums sell weenies. It's impossible to get an upstanding person to sell weenies these days. That must have been different in the 60s or something then, because I feel like now nobody would be like, ew, only a homeless person does that job, you know? like I know. If I see a man in New York selling hot dogs, I'm like, that dude's got to be rich. I mean, they sell very expensive hot dogs on the street. There's very low overhead. Or at least I think they're really hustling. It's a good job. Good middle class job. Yeah, that person works much harder than the guy on Wall Street. Yeah, I mean, Ignatius is the only weenie man who doesn't. He's given all the other weenie men a bad name. She is being judgy, <laughs> but I don't know, whatever. She's not a great person. She's just better than Ignatius. True. <laughs> Ignatius gets another letter from Myrna Minkoff, his sort of ex-girlfriend. <laughs> so she had previously told Ignatius, like, stop writing me letters. And in this letter, she's like, why haven't you been writing me letters? Maybe I was a little too harsh last time. <laughs> <laughs> She's talking about how in the past he had started to talk to her about how he wanted to start a divine right party where the candidate would be nominated by divine right. And she says, like, of course, I don't agree with that, but it's great that you are getting interested in politics. You should look into that again. She says, we need a three party system in this country. And I think that day by day, the fascists are growing in strength. This divine right party is the sort of fringe group scheme that would siphon off a large part of the fascist support. <laughs> so she's like, I support your ambitions. I mean, they're right. Because <laughs> I think that a lot of fascists would want to join you. Yeah. So by that logic, if you had a three party system, you'd rather the third party be closer to your opponent than to you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So you could just split the votes off. For sure. It's ridiculous that she's like encouraging him to do this thing. Yeah. If he actually has some passion about it to just say your whole purpose is to make it easier for my viewpoint to win, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So great job. Well, he reminds me of um, The Young Pope, which Rachel watched part of that show and I watched part of it. He's a pope and he's young. What a premise. <laughs> he's Jude Law and he's he becomes the pope, but he's got all these ideas that are basically like, he's the opposite of progressive. And yeah, he's basically espousing Ignatius's beliefs about what God should be and what the role should be. And he's young. And he's young. I got to watch this. <laughs> What? When is it on? No, it's a really good show. You know my family is Catholic, right? Nobody ever told me that. Okay, now you know. Are you sure I didn't edit that out? I don't remember that. But you would have heard it even if you edited it out. The fact that like I had to drive around with a little card of St. Christopher in my car to prevent accidents, and we also had a little medallion with St. Christopher on it. I've got one of those in my wallet. It's cute. It's saved all of us from being in deadly car accidents so far. St. Chris did all that? St. Christopher is the patron saint of travel. Did you know there's a version of him with a dog head? No. His name is St. Christopher Sinocephalus or something like that. What? <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny to me. His name is St. Christopher Sinocephalus, and it's just him with, like, a dog head. He basically looks like Anubis but wearing Catholic robes. That's amazing. Is he official? Do you is want, he canonized? Uh, is he the, official? The image of him is official. He it's a it's the same dude. It's just the idea is that people started depicting him with a dog head because they somebody read that it was like Saint Christopher something about like Canaanite and they thought it was Saint Christopher Canine. So they started painting him with as a dog head. How could that have been? No 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 no. <laughs> and then what? there were stories about how he was like from a race of dog headed people and then 
heard about Jesus and was like, oops, sorry for being a bad dog boy. <laughs> oops, time to renounce my dog-headedness. He's yeah. like, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to rebrand. I'm about travel now. I'm not about having a dog head. I don't, there's no way that that wacky misreading led to this entire. <laughs> okay, I'm sending you a picture. There are multiple pictures of him. A dog-headed warrior saint. I'm seeing his pictures. You've seen them? I'm seeing them. Oh, what do you think? Um, it's different. <laughs> it's different. Well, I have to say I don't love that. You don't? I thought you were into it. It's closing her valve. <laughs> mm. You yeah. don't like that? That's so funny. So now the furries know they're part of a rich religious tradition. <laughs> All right, we need to get back to the book. <laughs> All right, okay. back to the book. Back to the book. All right, so chapter eight, the first scene, we find out that Miss Trixie, who Ignatius worked with at Levy Pants, is now visiting the Levies, the wife convinced her husband to let her bring her over. So that's that. And next, we see that Patrolman Mancuso is still stationed in the bus station restroom, and he is in a very bad state. He's very pale, and he's very sickly. And he sees the teen boy from earlier, George, mm -hmm. the one who uh, has been working on some scheme at the Night of Joy and also tried to buy a hot dog from Ignatius. <laughs> so he sees the teen and he tries to arrest him. And the teen is like, why are you arresting me? I haven't done anything. And they get into a scuffle. And it turns out the patrolman had borrowed Ignatius's book by Boethius the teen grabs it in the struggle and leaves. Yeah, but the teen also hits him across the face with it. Yeah. And it says something about how Ignatius bought a particularly nice version and therefore it was like particularly heavy. <laughs> An expensive and heavy, yeah. <laughs> I, I just love that. Like Ignatius even managed to make this situation worse for <laughs> Officer Mancuso. Yeah, just, without even being there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the next section, there's a little party going on at Santa Bataglia's house, and Mrs. Riley is there. The whole thing is set up so that she can meet Claude Robichaud, the old man from earlier. And when he shows up, she realizes that he's the man that her son got arrested and that he's still mad about communists on the police force. So she's really worried about him meeting up with patrolman Mancuso. They meet up. It's touch and go for a while, but eventually they <laughs> mend their bridges and they're cool with each other. It was like a blind date kind of situation. Yeah, like a blind date. Yeah. She heard there was a well-dressed old man who had asked about her. And Santa Bataglia hates Ignatius and really just wants Mrs. Riley to find some love and enjoy herself. Yeah. With a wealthy man. Yeah. They're always saying things like, somebody ought to punch that boy in it's the mouth. It's very funny. Somebody <laughs> ought to punch that boy in the eye. Somebody ought to beat up on him. Everybody wants to beat up Ignatius. <laughs> yeah. And his mom will join in and say, yeah, somebody ought to kick the crap out of that <laughs> yeah, She's right. Uh, Jackie, do you want to talk about the particularly gross thing that happens in the chapter? Yeah. <laughs> so Santa Bataglia is uh, like, she prides herself on making potato salad. Potatoes. Is that how they pronounce Potatoes it? Salad. Potato salad. <laughs> so she, you know, she makes the potato salad. She decides to taste some of it, so she puts a spoon in, eats the potato salad off the spoon, licks the spoon clean, and places it on a little napkin next to the potato salad. <laughs> and you're like, uh-oh, something's going to go wrong. Later, um, Mrs. Riley does the same exact thing. She's like, oh, I'm going to taste some potato salad, licks it completely clean, puts it back down. Ugh, keeps happening. It's gross, but whatever. Nothing comes of it. <laughs> Apparently, it's good potato salad. It's good potato salad. But what I like about that is just that, yeah, John Kennedy Toole, like, this is a long book. It must have taken a long time to write. And he's just like, every once in a while, like, ooh, here's something weird I can put in that'll have no effect on the plot. And it's just funny. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Ignatius is now having trouble with his job at the Paradise Hot Dog place. He's not doing great work. He's eating so many hot dogs, he tells the guy that he's his best customer at this point. Yeah, and shouldn't he get a discount on the hot dogs that he eats? Yeah, because he eats so many. Yeah, because in yeah. bulk, yeah. The guy says, have you paid for that hot dog you're eating? And he's like, well, indirectly, sure. Just deduct it from my miserable paycheck. But this is also the whole thing where he like tries to get a cat, right? Yeah, he tries to catch a cat. Yeah, he tries to catch a cat and put it in the bun compartment. Is that? Why does he want this he cat? He wants it as a pet. Yeah. Jackie, you can understand that impulse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> he gets in trouble from like a health inspector, right? Who says you shouldn't be handling cats. He sees him digging a cat out of <laughs> yeah. the sewer. Yeah. <laughs> so does he put it in the hot dog bun compartment of the thing while there are buns in it? No, he did get it out of the sewer. He tried to put it in the compartment, but it got away. Yeah. And his boss is like, why were you playing with the cat? And he was like, I was just petting it. I wasn't playing with it. <laughs> I don't know how significant the cat is, but just the whole thing about him like loving his pet dog. I was thinking like, is this just part of his personality that he wants to have a pet for some reason? <laughs> he does seem to every once in a while have a weird impulse to care for things like his bean plant. Yeah. Maybe he's got like a nurturing impulse that's being unfulfilled. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So in yeah. the next section, we're back at the Night of Joy bar and the debut of the bird act is approaching. So we see Darlene doing this act and she's put on this skimpy orange dress with rings on it and she wants the bird to like peck at the rings and she says that it'll like pull the outfit off so that's her stripping act and the manager Lana Lee is like no 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 we've got to make some changes to this act she tells her anybody can insult a tramp these jerks want to see a sweet clean virgin get insulted and stripped by a bird so she's saying like the patrons don't care if you're dressed up like a tramp the patrons aren't going to care if a bird strips you. They want to see you like dressed up like a innocent young lady and then be stripped in front of them. That's what these weirdos like. I have to say that probably does make more sense, unfortunately. Yeah, so the so they come up with this idea. So Jones is like kind of heckling and he wants to destroy the bar. So she gets this idea like, <laughs> oh, let's do a antebellum South act. So you're going to dress up like a young plantation lady wearing like a white dress and you've just come back from the ball and all the men were trying to paw at you and you fended them off. But now your bird is stripping you and you're too innocent to know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a theory and I think Jones is the most intelligent character in the book. He is. He's very Because clearly. he sees everything that's going on. And when Lana at first was saying to Darlene, like, no, I'm not letting you do the stripping act at all. This is the worst thing. Like, you can't have a bird in here. It's going to attack somebody and we're going to get shut down. Jones, like, sees that this is a horrible idea and immediately, like, without thinking about it at all or seeming obvious is just like, you know what, Lana? I think we ought to give her a shot because he knows it's going to be horrible. Yeah. yeah, which who knows? It may or may not be. <laughs> the clientele is so bad. <laughs> yeah, and he also seems, he's totally aware that Ignatius is going to ruin anything that he's a part of or nearby. With, in, yeah. yeah. So he, he decides that he wants to find Ignatius and bring him to the Night of Joy, and that will be a way to sabotage <laughs> Lena Lee. So. Yeah, that's his plan because she's decided to go with the plantation theme that she's going to get him some kind of like slave costume. Like yeah. it's just like so offensive and she's going to make him be the doorman. And he tries to be like, nope, that costs $50 a week, but he still he can't quit because he hasn't figured out what her scam is yet. So he like he decides to hang in there. Right. So anyway, in the next section, we find out that Mancuso finally got let out of the bathroom <laughs> and his sergeant. <laughs> is put him on probation so he has like two weeks to bring in some kind of odd character and if he doesn't he's off the force is that also another joke like how the hell do you find it hard to find someone weird in new orleans yeah just they're everywhere <laughs> it sounds like they want him to bring in like a gay man or some kind of sexual deviant of some sort which is why they keep giving him all the outfits and making him hang out in bathrooms and stuff again this doesn't seem like it would be that hard <laughs> well the problem is it's so obvious that he's a cop mm -hmm. we're gonna get to a section in just a second where you see why he hasn't been able to bring okay. anyone in but okay so in the next section ignatius is back to writing in his weird journal about work that he hopes to publish as an advice column in the future <laughs> and we find out that he is now stationed in the french quarter which is where all the tourists are and he's being forced to wear a pirate costume but the costume doesn't fit so he just wears like a scarf and an earring and a sword so the problem is he says tourists don't go to new orleans looking to eat a hot dog but they do want to take pictures with him and he like poses for a group of tourists for a really long time and while they're walking away he hears him saying like he's so pathetic he's a drunk and one woman's like shouldn't we give him some money and another one's like no he's gonna spend it on alcohol which of course <laughs> Ignatius doesn't touch which he's obviously working selling hot dogs 
But uh, anyway, so that's that. He also has made a homemade sign that he stuck to the cart that says 12 inches of paradise. <laughs> that's it. I love all his sign making. <laughs> he loves to make signs. Because <laughs> it's paradise vendors. He doesn't see that that could also be like a double entendre. I mean, we don't know if he sees it or not. I don't think he does. He doesn't acknowledge it. So in the final section of the chapter, we're back to this professor, Dr. Telk a professor who we had seen in a very short section earlier. And he's back. He's talking to a female student who he sounds like the worst professor ever. He says like, oh yeah, I try to relate to my students because I know none of them are interested in history and I also don't care about it and in fact hate it. So I think that's why they (laughs) like me so much. I think that's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah, he thinks about like, oh, should I hit on this girl? She's the perfect college student. And we learned that he had previously taught Myrna Minkoff and Ignatius and that all the faculty hated them. (laughs) And he thinks like, I wonder if they're married now. The student says like, you know, the reason I'm here is because I turned in an essay a long time ago and I wanted to know what sort of grade I would be getting. He gets upset about that, that she wants her grade. And while he's looking for it, she finds a paper airplane from years ago when Ignatius was there and she unfolds it and it's from it's from Ignatius. It's another of his anonymous Zorro letters. <laughs> and it says like, you're a sexual pervert. You suck, professor. Something's coming for you. I'll get my revenge, whatever. And she like puts it in her purse for later. Yeah. So we're in chapter 10 now and Miss Trixie is still at the Levy's home. And we find out that Mr. Levy has tried to sell his factory multiple times and nobody wants to buy it. It's worthless. <laughs> and that's that. <laughs> So they're still in the picture. I was kind of surprised when they came back. This is a Chekhov's character book. Like every character you see is going to keep coming back and keep coming back. I have to say these are probably my least favorite sections. They're a little boring. Yeah, they're boring. They're sexist. They're (laughs) anti-Semitic. Yeah, Yeah, I'm I'm not really into their story. I hate seeing their marriage. (laughs) It's just so annoying to me. The one thing I do like is Miss Trixie interrupting them to say, would you two shut up? Or like, I'm getting revenge on you. (laughs) Or like, let me out of here. Why am I here? Yeah. Can you please let me be retired? <laughs> so uh, in the next section, we find out about Jones's outfit, that he's going to be the doorman. And this is when he makes a serious plan to get revenge by bringing Ignatius in to watch the act, mm. which he's got great instincts, really. Yeah. This is getting Shakespearean. Yeah. So in the next section, we find out that Mrs. Riley has been convinced by Claude Robichaud that Ignatius might be a communist. And she keeps asking him very unsubtle questions about if he's a communist. And he's like, no, are you are you kidding? I want a monarch with absolute power. (laughs) (laughs) No, are you kidding? I'm even worse. (laughs) Yeah. He says, like, I would never be a communist because then I would have to work with people like our neighbor or this other person. Like, I would never stoop to their level. Then he's like, all right, time to go sell hot dogs. (laughs) He's the worst person with the greatest superiority complex. He sees this like women's group that paints in their spare time and they've got a little exhibit and he starts yelling at them and critiquing their art. I love that part. They're like, just go away. (laughs) Magnolias don't look like that. It's like, you need to take a botany course (laughs) (laughs) or a geometry class. (laughs) I mean, I'm glad that they yelled at him and were like, just go away, you weirdo. (laughs) Get out of here. (laughs) Let me paint my weird alien magnolias in peace. (laughs) Yes, so he meets the man from like the very first chapter who purchased his mother's hat. And that man's name, it turns out, is Dorian Green, which is a name the man chose for himself because he says he came from Nebraska and he had a really boring name and he moved to New Orleans and now he's obviously like very heavily involved in the gay community constantly throwing parties, like costume parties every night and talking about how much fun it is. He and Ignatius get into a physical fight. Ignatius is (laughs) using the sword from his costume. (laughs) He throws a shoe at the man and the man catches the shoe, throws it back and it hits Ignatius in the face. And then Ignatius is like, I'm going to tell the police you assaulted me. (laughs) He's a fashion collector. He could have kept it. They end up bonding, though, because they see Officer Mancuso and Dorian is like, oh, my gosh, he's back. Like all the gay men in this area love him. We think he's so cute and funny. We love his costumes. It's so obvious that he's a police officer (laughs) that we frequently call the cops on him to get him arrested for being a pervert. (laughs) 
but now that I know he's having such a hard time, we'll make sure he doesn't get in trouble anymore because <laughs> we're so glad he's back. Aww. And he talks about like, oh, you know, some of us, like we love his accent work. We love his costumes. His accent. Yeah, work. seriously. He's like, some people's favorite accent is his like British one. I really like the Southern accent. <laughs> and it's very cute, honestly. <laughs> he has a friend who is a sex worker, presumably, who walks around dressed as a sailor. And Ignatius is like, oh, I wonder how many of our military are simply people like your friend, disguised tarts. And Dorian says, who knows? I wish they all were. So like every time he sees like an entire like naval ship, he's like, that's probably just a boat full of sex workers. Yeah, they're all secretly gay men dressed up as sailors. <laughs> like they're on a cruise, yeah. Yeah, so he comes up with an idea for politics because he's like, why is my mom so interested in politics these days? She only ever votes for people if she thinks they're nice to their own mothers. And then Myrna Minkoff's letter, they've together, it's got him thinking about politics. And he's talking to Dorian. And he's like, you know what? If all of our generals were just disguised gay men, we probably wouldn't have any wars because they'd all be having sex with each other. And Dorian's like, yeah, yeah, uh, you're right. That is what would happen. And he just thinks <laughs> Ignatius is like so ridiculous that he loves him and he wants to take him to parties and stuff. Yeah. So he comes up with the idea. He tells him, we're going to come up with a political party and the goal is to fill every political office with gay men all over the world and then we'll achieve world peace. And he tells him, like, look, you're not very well read. You need to read Boethius and a couple other medieval <laughs> scholars and then skip everything until you get to Batman. <laughs> he says, I really respect Batman for his rigid morality. And that's the only literature he thinks is worthwhile. So we're back to George, the teen from before, who it turns out he started hanging out with cathedrals because he's so he picks up these packages of contraband in the morning, but he has to wait a couple hours to deliver them at the night of joy. And he's having a hard time finding a safe place because he can't bring them there while Jones is working. He has to wait till Jones is on lunch and he can't hang out in the bus station bathroom anymore because patrolman Mancuso's in there. <laughs> so he gets an idea, which is that he wants to hide them in Ignatius's hot dog wagon because he's like a police officer would never want to talk to him. They would never think to look in a hot dog wagon. That's funny because he talks to policemen all the time. I guess, yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's also just like mad at Ignatius and is like, well, if he were to get caught with them, then he'd be pinned for it. Yeah, that'd be nice. So our final chapter for the episode, chapter 11, Claude Robichaud, Santa Bataglia, and Mrs. Riley are all hanging out. And we find out that Claude's money comes from his pension for working for the railroad for 45 years and that he owns several rental properties. And he lives with his daughter, but he would like to move out, which Santa's so excited about on Mrs. Riley's behalf. And all of them are talking about how they think it would be a great idea to have Ignatius put in the charity hospital. <laughs> so they all go to the movies together and Claude holds Mrs. Riley's hand for the first time. So things Aww. are... I mean, she's not that into it, though. She's thinking like, can I get my hand away from him? <laughs> I have to say probably 40%, maybe, maybe even more of girls who have had their hands held by their first date in a movie theater did not really want to be holding that guy's hand in the movie theater. Maybe so. So she's just getting a universal experience, really. Okay, so the next section, Ignatius has started a campaign called Save the World Through Degeneracy, and he's, like, coming up with plans to help these men run for office. And here's his quote. Almost everyone else has had an opportunity to run the world. I cannot see why these people should not be given their chance. They have certainly been the underdog long enough. Their movement into power will be, in a sense, only a part of the global movement toward opportunity, justice, and equality for all. Which, he doesn't care about those things. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, he's basing the entire premise of the movement on stereotypes about them, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. But also, he doesn't care about equality in general. He wants a <laughs> monarch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly, he just wants to be able to write to Myrna and be like, look what I did. I made a gay man the president. It seems like he thinks it's going to be so easy to just have gay men in infiltrate all of the military yeah. of every country immediately. He's like, we're going to 
going to aim pretty high. Probably yeah. we'll be able to get one to be the president pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, if you were him and if he knew even half of the effects that he had, because he doesn't even know a lot of the stuff that he's influenced, like, you would have a god complex. But I feel like this entire book, like, part one of the themes is, like, do the ends justify the means or are the means important? And his ideas are all about, like, yeah, world peace, whatever, equality but his means are all completely awful. Mm. No, no, no. The the world peace is the means, and the end is impressing Myrna Minkoff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're right. So that makes it worse. <laughs> okay. What a weird guy. What a weird guy. I actually liked him more in this section than the previous one. It seems like at this point, he's already set all the balls rolling. And I do like Dorian. The people who interact with him in this section it seems like they kind of know how to handle him a little better. Yeah. <laughs> and now that his mom is standing up for herself some more, I'm not feeling as bad for everyone around him. Oh, but it gets worse. I felt like I became more aware of how often he lies in this section. Telling his mom that the cat scratches that he got when he was trying to take that cat home. And he said it, he got in a scuffle with a prostitute. Yeah, who wanted to steal his hot dogs. <laughs> I feel like reading this section is what made me question all of his writings in the previous section that we read you didn't question it till now a lot more so i feel like he didn't lie to that extent in the first section did he i think i've told you guys like i had a friend who would just randomly lie about stuff even when it was obvious that she was lying Uh i don't know if you guys have ever known someone like that so this is an example of like a very obvious lie where there's no reason to lie at all which is when i was in high school we both applied to the same university and i got in and she didn't she got into another university that's good but not as hard to get into. I mean, depending on what you're going for. So she was talking shit about the university that I had gotten into for no reason, just out of the blue, talking shit about it, which was rude because that's where she knew I was going. And finally, I got tired of it. I'm like, you tried to get into that school and you were not able to. Why are you talking like this? And she said to me, I never wanted to go there. We were sitting in her car at this time. I pointed at the windshield and I said, you can see on the windshield the outline of the logo of UNC because you had a UNC sticker on there and you recently took it off and the glue is still there. She was like, what? And I'm like, look, you can see it. It's obviously the UNC logo. And she's like, uh, I didn't even put that there. My mom did. Wow. So that was like, like, why did you do that? I like to imagine this is, you know, how like Sherlock is always noticing little tiny details and using that to solve crimes. Yeah. I would like it if instead of solving crimes, Sherlock was just like someone who goes around like embarrassing people for lying. Whoa. That's basically what it was. The would weird be. thing is I was the only one there. So I don't know, like, what was the benefit of talking bad about the school I was about to go to? <laughs> she wasn't embarrassed in front of anyone. It was just me. But and normally I would just let her lie because it didn't really bother me. But I'm like, no, you're not. You're not going to do that this time. <laughs> I'm looking at the dang logo. I know. Isn't that funny, though? And it's like a very obvious stickiness. She could have said, no, no, no. That's that's for the University of Northern Colorado. <laughs> because here's a funny story about UNC. Our physics building was not supposed to be built. This is the urban legend. No, I think it's true. Yeah, like, you think it's true. It doesn't look like any of the other buildings. Basically, there had been a building designed for the University of Northern Colorado that got built on the University of North Carolina's campus that was supposed to have been built on the other. So they have like switched buildings, apparently. What? So yeah, the style of building is different from the other ones. Look, I, I have heard that from people before, but everyone, I don't know if it's everyone true, who but said it to me was like, this is what people say. We're not sure, but it kind of makes sense. This is what that liar told me. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a labyrinthine building though. Like you get easily lost in it. It's very weird. They love that in Colorado. All right. So we're in the next section. Miss Trixie has finally been returned to the Levy Pants factory. We find out that the business is being sued for half a million dollars because of a letter Ignatius wrote to a client that he forged that was like extremely insulting. Mrs. Levy, it turns out, wants to start some sort of foundation using whatever money they still have. So she and the husband just argue about that. And obviously the husband is really stressed because he's being sued for half a million dollars. This is one of my favorite parts of the book when it says, Mr. Levy turned cold as he flipped the page and read the letter to Abelman's. It was incredible. Who would go to the trouble of writing things like that. We've seen Ignatius write all sorts of bizarre, offensive. <laughs> yeah, throughout the past, like 230 pages or whatever. I felt like I even sort of got used to it by this point. Got used to and it. then yeah. somebody comes in and has this fresh perspective and they're saying, 
why on earth would someone do this? Yeah. I just thought that was so funny. <laughs> because as a reminder, what he had done was written a letter to the company that had complained saying, you sent us pants that are ridiculously way too short, like absurdly too like short. Two and feet he just too short. to them and said, yeah, you should have been able to sell these anyway. Yeah, like you're idiots. And he called them a bunch of weird names. Yeah, racial <laughs> slurs. And yeah, it's just... <laughs> All right. In the final section, Ignatius is like pushing his hot dog truck and he gets it stuck in a streetcar track and he can't get it out. He like knocks it over. Hot dogs are falling out. And the teen George sees it and he's like, oh, I'll help you. And Ignatius is super rude to him for a long time, finally lets him help him. The streetcar had to stop. I I love the part about the streetcar just because knowing how slow those streetcars go, it's like the slowest public transportation I've ever seen. And he gets the wheel stuck in the track and then he just wants to abandon his cart and run away. (laughs) You're not going to die. Like that, the streetcar can easily stop. Well, he thinks everything (laughs) moves really fast. He's against all movement. He's like, this is too much of a burden. I hate being responsible to this. It's like I have a child. (laughs) They write the truck and George gives him $2 and Ignatius is like, oh, is this because you insulted me the other day? George is like, uh, yeah, sure. So he says, hey, uh, I have my school supplies that I have to carry around all day. Can I keep them in your cart? I'll pay you a couple bucks every day. This is even dumber. He should have just put it in there when he wasn't looking. Well, I mean, he's going to have to go into the bun compartment all the time. Whenever he finds a new cat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or eats one of the dozens of hot dogs he eats a day. It's true. So Ignatius tells him like, okay, yeah, pay me up front. He gets $10, which is great because the hot dog vending man was like, if you don't make $5 today, you're fired. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, well, let me look in this package. And he pulls out a photograph of its pornography. (laughs) Yeah. George is like, no, don't open that. And he just tears it open. Yeah. So he sees a photograph and it's a naked woman covering her face with his Boethius book. (laughs) And she's got like a globe or whatever. And he comes up with this whole backstory about how she's like an intellectual professor who like has hit rock bottom and she has to do this to make ends meet. (laughs) So interesting to me because I thought the way he would react would be like this is disgusting, this is filth, but he was like, oh this is brilliant filth like I love this and then he keeps it. She must be a genius and he starts thinking like I think I'll have sex with her and then I'll brag about it to Myrna Minkoff. (laughs) You don't even know who this is. Yeah. Yeah, he's so happy to see someone else's reading Boethius not realizing that that's the copy he gave to Patrolman Mancuso yeah. that then George took and then used in these pornographic photos. Yes. Right. And he doesn't even care that, like, she's clearly not reading it. Like, <laughs> she's using it. He thinks yeah. it's, like, a subtle commentary. And he's like, she must have read Boethius so much. But she's, like, using a piece of chalk to, like... We don't need to talk about all the details. No, but... but... Yeah. I mean, he's saying that Boethius was basically, like, a Stoic who was, like, the... The filth of the world cannot touch me. So he thinks that to her, she's she's got the same mindset where both mm. Boethius was like, I'm about to be tortured, but who cares? It's fine. Whatever. I'm above it. And she is thinking, well, whatever. I have to take pornographic photos. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm intellectually superior to this. <laughs> right. So he thinks that's great. And he's like, I bet she wouldn't mind that I'm probably going to be terrible at sex. So all of a sudden he just decides he wants to have sex. Yeah, for the first time. After being against it for 30 years. Okay. Yeah. That's all it took, Boethius. Yeah, he's a freak. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I hear Boethius is like an aphrodisiac. For him it is. Okay, so previously, Jones had seen Lanley's secret stash of packages, and he didn't open it, but he wrote the address of the Night of Joy on the package because he's thinking like, I bet something will come of this. I bet the police will find the, this and have find the address. Yeah. So, so Ignatius sees the address written on the package and he's like, this woman, she must be at this address. I'm going to go find her. But he watches a movie and heckles the screen first. <laughs> then he goes to the Night of Joy. <laughs> he and Jones meet up. At last, he also sees Darlene and Lana Lee again, and he's like rude to everyone. Once Lana Lee goes away, Jones is like, oh, uh, yeah, uh, the woman who reads Boethius, you should come back whenever the <laughs> show happens, this new bird show yeah. for Harlot O'Hara. <laughs> That's good. And Ignatius is like, oh, my gosh, Harlot, that must be the woman. Jones tells him, yeah, you know, the manager, she'll be gone then. So don't worry. Like, I'll give you a table right up front. <laughs> come back in two days. So he's excited about that. 
And Santa Bataglia apparently has encouraged Claude Robichaud to propose to Mrs. Riley. The Levies call Ignatius's house. He answers the phone and says, yeah, Ignatius isn't here. He's been sent to a mental hospital. You can visit him, bring him cookies, and then hangs up. And that's the chapter. Yeah, and the Levies are trying to contact him because he's responsible for that letter that they're getting sued for. So, (laughs) yeah, they're just trying to get some answers or something. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) But anyway, so that's the end. So what do you guys think? It's getting wacky. It's getting wacky. You agree, Theo? I agree. Yeah, this part was much more enjoyable to read than the first part for me because the first part was just so much set up and so much of Ignatius just being an asshole. I have to say, I mean, I can almost kind of see why John Kennedy Toole, when told he had to revise this book, I mean, I'm sure he revised it a little bit, but when told all of this, that he had to, you know, substantially change things about the plot, I too would have just been like, I can't. (laughs) I mean, it's so complicated. There's so many people. It's intricate. The complaint that we have at the beginning where it's like so many people are coming in and all these weird things are happening. You have no idea why they all get tied up. And yeah, it's impossible to change anything because you would have this entire thing would unravel. How can you pull one thread? Right. Because everything gets affected. Even the little chapters, like the tiny little sections about this professor, everything has a point eventually. It's just, it's complicated. So Right, absolutely everything, which I mean is impressive, but impressive does not always equal good literature, but I think there's arguments to be made for both in this case. Okay, so that's that. Come back next week and we will... F- finish everything up. I'm still inclined to not have this in the canon because I am enjoying it a lot more, but this is the kind of book where if you made everyone read it, I would say at least 60% would just hate it and get nothing from it at all. I'm going to reserve my judgment till the end of the third episode. <laughs> I'm saying what I'm inclined towards now. And based on what I've seen <laughs> online, if you ever see anyone who says, hey, has anyone read a, confeder- a confederacy of dunces? They either say, because I love it, or because I hate it. <laughs> it's funny. Ever since since we've started recording these and, and reading this book, I've noticed it more online. Like, I'll just be scrolling through Reddit or something, and somebody will be like, I hate a confederacy of dunces. <laughs> and then 60 people will be like, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This week, we'd like to thank our new patron, Linda. Yay, Linda. Thank you so much. We're so thank happy you, to have Linda. you. Yay. I've known Linda for as long as I've been alive. She's always been one of my mom's best friends. I remember not being able to pronounce my R's yet and being really excited that she was coming over. I I don't know how old I was, maybe four or five. And when she arrived at our house, I remember saying, Winda! She was one of the people who helped uh, raise me and my brother, and she had a huge impact on my childhood. And she's been really supportive ever since. So it really means a lot that she's a patron. So thank you, Linda. Yeah, that is really nice. So we know, Linda, that your feelings for us must be true. And you're going to be getting one of our What Would Brother Wizard in the Sky do bracelets. Yes. I find it so hard to say that Have you time. finished making them yet or not yet? I'm still learning how to make bracelets. Okay, so once Jackie learns how to make <laughs> bracelets, <laughs> they're going to yeah, be done. We'll get your info and she'll be sending one your way. So thank you so much again. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. If anyone else would like to join our Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com slash firethecanon. We have a lot of rewards coming in. We're so excited because our stickers should arrive in the mail this week. So we can't wait for you all to start sticking them on things and sending us photos. If you'd like to contact us via email, we're at firethecanonpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram and Twitter at firethecanonpod. And we have a Facebook announcement group and discussion group, Fire the Cannon Podcast. Don't forget our website. Yeah, don't forget our website. It is www.firethecanonpod.com. Yes, so check us out in one of those places. We look forward to hearing from you. All right, everyone. Have a nice week. Thanks, Nell. Thanks, Nell. Thanks, Nell.